Good evening, everybody. You're listening to Outside of a Dream, a podcast of the best in new horror cinema, video, and short fiction. I'm Daniel Link. And I'm Cameron Suey. So, previous episode, we had a different Cameron on, Cameron Tremblay, while you, I believe you were recuperating, correct? Or were you... I, I, I don't remember which of the, um, of the straws on my back uh, <laughs> caused me to break out from the last recording. But yeah, let's go with sickness. Uh, it's been a hell of a flu season. Yep. Uh, it comes at night, Cameron Suey edition. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, you have returned so we can both discuss this really good horror movie that got released on Netflix earlier this month, The Ritual. It's based off the novel by a British author, Adam Neville, and it's directed by David Bruckner from a script by Joe Barton. And it officially came out Last year, like I think it must have been on the festival circuit, but it hit streaming uh, specifically on Netflix earlier this month. And oh boy, was it up our alley. Yeah. And through the magic of being a parent who's out of touch with everything, I actually didn't hear about this at all until uh, just about um, a week ago or so before it came out on Netflix. And I think we've previously established as part of my character profile, um, if somebody puts on a backpack and goes into the forest, (laughs) I'm already on board with the movie. Yeah. And I'm a a woods liker. What's woods arborist? I don't know what the term is, but yeah, if yeah, woodsman, I think a lot of my favorite horror settings they are pretty basic. They boil down to shitty house in the awful woods, and boy, does this movie <laughs> have that in spades. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I at the risk of spoilers, this early on, multiple shitty houses in yeah. limitless terrifying woods. Yes, uh, specifically the woods of Sweden along the Kungsleden, the King's Trail in Serik National Park. So the premise of the ritual is starts off with five friends in a public house, a pub in jolly old England. There are these thirty-something dudes, uh, former university friends uni friends, uh, and they're discussing what to do on their next trip because they have an annual get-together even though they've moved on and gotten married or gotten different jobs. And some of them are discussing, let's go to Ibiza. And then one of them, Rob, suggests, hey, let's all try walking this trail in northern Sweden. Which I, I'd never heard of before, but is apparently like the Appalachian Trail of, of Europe. It's sort of a well-known backpacking destination. Now, I don't know if it was actually shot on location there, but let me tell you, regardless of where it was shot after seeing it, I kind of want to go there. And yeah, I don't know what it is about really good horror settings where it's like, oh, this place is terrifying. Oh, I want to take a trip there. Like, be it. I mean, I. Yeah, I think I tweeted right after I saw this that there has been uh, no backpacking horror movie that has ever ended with me saying, I don't want to go backpacking there. Um, in the end, I always want to go there. And I, you know, I think we're both sort of people who we seek out horror movies, obviously. It makes sense that we would mm-hmm. um, like to go into creepy places that other people don't. Um, I think I may have mentioned this before, but I intentionally went backpacking the day or the night that I saw Blair Witch Project. Um, because Perfect. I thought that would be a great idea. Um, uh, and I stand by it. It was. Yeah, this will take years to probably prepare something but ever since 2007 when i first saw the thing i want to go to antarctica someday like maybe do yeah. the six months at an antarctic station like mcmurdo but that's away in the future i'm just gonna talk about the here and now which is the five blokes they exit the pub and one of them luke played by rafe spall decides he hasn't finished his drinking for the night so he and rob 
go into the nearby liquor store, goes to grab some vodka. And unfortunately, they walk right into the middle of a stick up uh, by two very, very hostile. Uh, well, they're listed as junkie in the end credits. So I'm going to go. Yeah, they're tweaking and, on something. And in the, the subtitles as well. And yeah, they, they, they clearly aren't professional criminals. So Luke manages to duck out of sight, but Rob, he's caught out there in the aisle, and he doesn't want to give up his wedding ring for obvious reasons, and unfortunately that gets him two blows of a machete to the face, because, well, there are very few guns in England, there are a lot of knives, unfortunately, and we flash forward a bit to several months later, where the four surviving friends, they have made good on Rob's plan to hike the King's Trail, you know, Rob yeah. having unfortunately passed on. And they're, they wake up and they're tense in the just austere waste, I'm about to say wasteland, but it's just like these rolling vast hills and, you know, Viking territory. It's, yeah, and, and there's something in the way, the way it's shot and also the, the way the Scandinavian landscape is, is that it feels sort of inherently uh, cold and uninviting. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that makes me still want to backpack it. Um, something about what struck me about this opening sequence, um, I think a lot of times character arcs um, are sort of boiled down and pared away mm-hmm. for horror films to get to the meat of what people, what they think people want to see. But what struck me about this movie um, and what did not strike a lot of people, and I've noticed that a lot of people felt that the characters were not well drawn, is that in that opening sequence, um, I got a really strong sense of all the characters, but not only that, um, there's something so painfully honest about that dynamic of friends who are aging and separating. And, you know, they have that brief conversation before they're interrupted in the, in the, in the liquor store about how one of them suggested brunch, um, just, and he was in, and Phil is sort of disgusted that he would suggest <laughs> brunch instead of going out to a pub. Um, and I think they, they're in a very spare amount of economical time. They really set up four fairly distinct characters, well, five. Um, and then also the tension that sort of has been simmering beneath all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they reach Sweden and they're, you know, they've obviously done this out of a sense of, um, making good, uh, to their friend, Rob. Um, none of them are terribly thrilled to be there, but there's also clearly this, um, this simmering undercurrent because when Phil is in the liquor store, um, he picks up a bottle to make an action to try to help his friend, but he ultimately freezes, um, and stays perfectly still as his friend dies. And it's never spoken, but it is, it is the unspoken moment that sort of underlies every one of Phil's interactions with everybody else. Yeah, um, for the rest of the movie, and I think it's it's such an honest, economical, and unfortunately sort of toxic masculine way. Yes, that they deal with it. Um, that just felt it felt so familiar in a way that I didn't want it to be familiar. Yeah. Um, I, but I was really taken by how well they they pulled that dynamic off. Yeah. I'm intrigued by like horror stories that basically have all male casts and like take place in these isolated locations where it's like all about that simmering toxic masculinity, like kind of boiling to the surface. You have that in John Carpenter's The Thing. You have that in Black Mountainside. And uh, I'm going to say Stephen King's Dreamcatcher as well. But that idea of like, you know, oh, it's a guy's trip, but also it's guys who haven't worked out their personal issues and haven't been raised in a way that allows them to healthily (laughs) express them. Um, Right. Not only do they not have the tools for it, but they, you know, these guys trips they do are, 
their sort of clumsy way of working around those failings that they mm-hmm. have with communicating with each other. Yeah. And actually, let's lay out the the four surviving members of this band of blokes. So there's mm-hmm. Luke, played by Rafe Spall, who is he's the main character for all intents and purposes. He's the one who uh, stood by as his friend was killed. You have Hutch, who's like kind of like, I would say like the leader of the group in Rob's absence. And he's like really kind of fit, adventurous, 30-something dude who, for the most part, I think seems to have his shit together. Yeah. I, he, he, he stunned me because I'm so used to that actor from the only other thing that I've seen him in, oh. which is Downton Abbey. Oh. Um, where he plays uh, a a scheming and venomous manservant um, <laughs> who, you know, you, you sort of come to like over the course of the show because he's doing these things out of a sense of survival and the position he's in. But he's he's introduced as a a very serpentine sort of creepy character in Downton Abbey. And he's playing completely against that type here. Um, he's playing someone warm, uh, caring. Um, it almost, you know, in another movie, I think he might be the hero. He's he seems to have such a good heart. Yes. Um, and he's he's the only one that seems to be truly aware of what's going on with Luke. Yeah. Um, and he's the only one who says it. What's going on out loud? Which is, he says, "You know, I don't blame you." Mm-hmm. He says that very early on. Um, and that's just another one of those really touching dynamics that sort of, in a single line, they sort of tease out. Um, I, I want to be like Hutch in a disaster. He's yeah. such a like a grounded character. I really enjoyed him a lot. Yeah. Uh yeah, yeah. There's Hutch played by Robert James Collier. There's Phil played by Arsha Ali, who's very laid back, I might say mostly stoic dude, who I will say for of the four characters, he felt the most flat to me. Like his core trait seemed to be he's just kind of reserved and he keeps his issues mostly to himself. His things like, I just want to be out of here. I don't like this. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Uh, and this lastly, there's Dominic, played by Sam Troughton, who really does not want to be there. He, you can tell this good dude has a nice married life and a cushy office job. And the yeah, last place he physically wa- fit. And the last place he wants to be is uh, in this sparse trail in the northern north of Sweden. And it's actually good that you mentioned him being least physically fit because it's him getting his foot wrenched in a kind of little pothole that basically starts off the plot. Uh, so basically he twists his ankle really badly and boy, do we hear about it. And they realize it's going to take us too long to get back to the lodge at which we have a reservation. There is a shortcut. It's through this patch of woods here. Yeah. Which, um, you know, I've also seen a lot of complaints about that being like a stupid character decision. Like, Mm -hmm. Oh, why would they go into the terrifying dark woods? Um, and as someone who's been on the trail and had to cut trips shorts due to injury, Mm -hmm. like that seemed a perfectly reasonable thing to me to do. Um, Hutch is clearly knows how to navigate and orient. He's got a, uh, a compass. Um, and I think that the ultimate end of the movie bears Hutch out is that that was the correct direction to go. Yeah. They we're always going in the right direction. It just, there was maybe some data that they didn't have. It seemed, it seems a very natural yeah. sort of, um, hiking decision to me for them to go through that forest. To be fair to literally every character in a horror movie, like, a lot of characters make bad decisions in horror movies. Like, oh, I wouldn't do that. They're in that position because, you know, monsters like supernatural beings don't exist in real life, at least as far as we know. So if like I, if I'm skeeved out by some woods at night and realize, oh, there's no one to go in there. Like maybe there's a bear, but I know how to react if I see a bear. Oh God, no, I would, I would be the first to panic. Who am I kidding? Uh, <laughs> I, 
Well, I think there's, there is, I mean, definitely there's a, a, a very real criticism of horror movies that sometimes characters make decisions that are based on the plot and not the character. And I think I like, I think I have a real sense for when a, a bad decision makes sense from a character perspective, mm-hmm. like in this movie, or a bad decision comes from a plot perspective. Um, I won't call anything out, but you know, when somebody does something clearly against character just to advance the plot, we all know and feel that that's incorrect. And it's sort of, it lessens the impact of it. But when you have competent characters who make good decisions or at least in character decisions and they're still threatened. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's scarier. That's more of effective horror storytelling at that point. Yeah. Oh, I should have mentioned there's a really nice moment before all this starts to go awry where they gather at the top of this hill and they set up a picture of Rob and they make a little shrine to him and they all, you know, take a sip from a flask they hand around and Hutch pours one out for him. But they underestimated how much booze was left in the flask, so he's pouring it out for like an excessive amount of time. And yeah, and all the other characters recognize this, and they have like a good kind of muffled chuckle over it. It was a nice, touching human moment. It's it's a really great moment. But I, you know, when I go back to those like economic character moments, yeah, there's a moment in there where Dom seems to look a little more intently at the scotch being drained than everyone else. And then I started to think back about how Dom seemed to be the person that wasn't interested in going out and partying on their guy's trip. So I immediately started to develop this story in my head that Dom's a recovering alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, and and I think when I like a movie, I will, I will go deep to the well, sort of filling in holes and making apologia for things that maybe don't make sense. But I, I think that this movie is just, it, there's a lot of rich character texture that I think is ignored in a lot of horror movies. Um, and whether or not that moment's intentional or not, uh, I had already was starting to give it the credit that it, it was intending those moments. I think we touched on this in the It Comes at Night discussion, but I will give pretty much any questionable decision in a movie like Credence if they do a good enough job of establishing the characters as human beings before make, they make that decision. Absolutely, yeah. Give me a competent enough illusion that this is a real person before they make the ill-informed choice that a real person would make. Yeah. And so from there, they venture into the woods and they don't make it through on that first night. So they have to camp in this just utterly abandoned. I think it would have been like a ranger's cabin or something. Uh, a hunting lodge, maybe. Hunting the, lodge, the yes. The impression that, that I got, yeah. Yeah. And so they basically break in there, you know, set up a very rudimentary fire and they bed down for the night. And that's when shit starts to pop off because yeah, yes, that I mean that is the movie that the that's the moment that the movie takes off and never lets go. Um, they they do discover one critical thing Ooh, before yes. deciding to stay the night is that in the upstairs room of the hunting lodge there is a grotesque human sized yes um, effigy of what appears to be a headless person with hands for feet um, with the hands on the shoulders clutching antlers. Um, and it's an incredibly bizarre image that uh, a close memory of that image will bear fruit later on in the movie. Yeah. And I think this is where we start to tap into like the similar stick figure imagery as the Blair Witch Project, like when they find the effigies hanging in the woods in that famous scene. And I heard a lot of comparisons to Blair Witch Project, especially the first part of this movie before we- Yeah. Yeah. And well-deserved ones. I think it may have been you who said that this is a better sequel to Blair Witch Project than uh, Adam Wingard's Blair Witch was. 
Uh, I think I believe you said that. I think the thing I said was that it it feels like uh, a Blair Witch movie with a full act after the end of where you expect a Blair Witch movie to end. Ah, that's a good yeah. Um, which is and and I think Blair Witch is a very good comparison um, for the first two thirds of the film, mm-hmm. um, and then once the third act begins, I don't think that I've ever seen a movie like this, both in terms of the imagery and the terms of the story. Yeah. Um, so much so that I don't think that I had a clear sense of where the movie was going up until the ending, which is a feeling that I don't get very often in films because I tend to look at things so structurally, I tend to start guessing where things are going. And like, that's an exhilarating feeling. Like, cause like, yeah, you and I, you know, you are a storyteller professionally. You've written a ton of stories. I have dabbled that in the past. I'm more of a story appreciator. At a certain point, we both get kind of, all right, yeah, I see where this story is going. So when something like becomes genuinely unpredictable, it's a rush like I rarely feel. Like So they bed down for the night, and Luke has this nightmare where he finds himself back in the convenience store where Rob was killed, but in a way that blends the stark fluorescence and shelves of the, com- the convenience store uh, with the woods that he's currently camping in. And you'll find they come back to this image a lot throughout the movie, this weird blending of modern urban environment and these deep, dark woods. Yeah, and it's a stunning image. Um, and I, I think we're still, we are before the the spoiler barrier here because I think all of this is pretty clearly spelled out in the trailer. I didn't even watch the trailer going in. I just heard, oh. yeah, basically all I heard is like, this is based off uh, a book by Adam Neville and- Adam Neville, I've read one of his books, Apartment 16. I wasn't a big fan, but our mutual friend on Twitter, Maggie, who had read yes. the uh, novel, The Ritual, uh, she had very good things to say about this movie, especially in comparison to the source material, where she thought the movie was quite a bit better. And so I was like, okay, no trailers, no anything. I'm just going to put this on, and ah, it was great. Uh, well, it, at the risk of avoiding the the big the big spoiler, the, mm-hmm. the trailer... Um, the trailer still makes it feel like it's a, a mysterious Blair Witch style mm-hmm. movie. It doesn't. It doesn't delve into that third act at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, this is definitely a book that I'm going to go read um, immediately after after watching this. And Maggie's also, I don't think, ever been wrong on a book recommendation. So um, Ooh, I'm I'm, ex- I'm excited to, uh, to 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 dig into this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when we talked earlier about um, uh, about Phil being the sort of um, the sort of weakest developed character. Yeah. And then I mentioned that I will make apologia to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, and I've talked to other people who also very much liked the movie and felt the same way. I got the sense that, um, now in this house, not only does Phil have a nightmare, but we find out that all the other characters have had nightmares as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Hutch and Dom sort of refuse to share the content of their nightmares. Yeah. Um, instead implying that it was very, personal yeah however phil is naked upstairs praying to the effigy and when they get to him he's still sort of in a fugue state Mm -hmm. um and the sort of fear on his face once he realizes what he did in his dream um is really really potent and i think that percolates i mean that to me is the rest of phil's character he is i think more haunted than anyone else and i get the sense of this sort of dense, deep, internal horror going on behind his eyes, really for the rest of the movie. Um, now, someone who didn't like the movie said, would, would probably be more correct in saying that Phil is, is thinly developed. But <laughs> I think I was so keyed in on it, like I really felt like 
Phil was having his own sort of interior nightmare that he wasn't sharing with anyone mm-hmm. else. You know, occasionally he'll just sort of mutter things like, I never would have done that. Um, huh. And you get the sense that it's really, really tearing into him um, that he was forced to pray. And specifically, no one else, that didn't happen to anyone else, but that happened to Phil. And it seems to upset him um, on a sort of soul deep level. Yes. And so they're all very very phased by these turn of events in the middle of the night. Luke wakes up to find that he has this weird like star pattern of cuts on his upper chest. Uh, and they come back to that later. And these cuts, they never seem to stop bleeding. And so they like, okay, let's get the fuck out of here. So they pack up their gear and they start venturing through the woods, making a beeline for where the lodge is supposed to be. And at some point they come across uh, a cache buried underground like they see some fabric sticking up on the ground and they uncover all of these stowed away items including a picture of a family from years ago i believe like the 80s yeah a credit card expiring in 1984 next to a pair of boots and a camping tent yeah implying that some family has been abducted and maybe had horrible things done to them quite a few years ago and they're making their way through the forest you know the tensions between them are building either coming near the point or we're at the point where dom just breaks loose and he accuses luke yes. of being a coward and letting it's rob died the unspoken thing that is that is percolating throughout their all their interactions blow up here when they're arguing about what direction to go um which having been in a backpacking situation in which everyone was tense and we were arguing about which direction to go mm-hmm. this felt like the most authentic <laughs> scene in the world to me and it was a little bit much um, but yeah, Dom very specifically says, <clears throat> he says, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Oof, he yeah. won't actually say the full thing, what he means. And Phil has to sort of force him to say it because, you know, Dom knows it's an awful, awful thing to say. But in that moment, it all sort of comes bubbling up. And it's just, it's so painful and so real. Yeah. And we keep coming back to this moment where Luke was for a all lack of a better term, a coward and allowed Rob to be killed. But it's a very believable human cowardice. Like I remember seeing Saving Private Ryan for the first time, like years ago as a kid. And do you remember that scene like near the climax where uh, the field reporter Upham, he's like unable to go upstairs and save Adam Goldberg from being stabbed by that Nazi? Yep. Yeah. And I remember like my friends who I watched with saying like, oh, that fucking dude, like if if I knew someone who was like dessert like that or like freak out and not help out in the middle of combat, like they deserve to be taken out back and shot. And I'm just quietly sitting there going, I would totally be that guy who would have an anxiety attack in the middle of battle. Yeah. I, it's, and, and I especially think the way that Phil's, um, or excuse me, that, that Luke's moment of cowardice plays out. It's so fast and he's so not ready for it. Um, that it's, that it's less about an active choice about cowardice and more about, a hesitation from doing what's right. Yeah, it's just a very human person who's haunted by this moment of inaction he had. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so tensions boil. Dom gets punched in the face, and I maybe mean, he had that coming, but... Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Dom, th- th- I think one of the reasons that Dom made me so mad is that um, I saw so much of myself when I'm frustrated uh, in him, you know, the sort of like him leaning on his injuries. Mm -hmm. And even Hutch admits that maybe his injury isn't as bad as he thinks it is, Mm -hmm. but they need to, because Dom is their friend, they're going to treat him like it is, Mm -hmm. which is another great good guy Hutch moment. 
but yeah, I, I, there's I, Dom's anger and antipathy while frustrating is it's very believable and it's, you know, you're mad at Dom, but he's, you know, where he's coming from. Yeah. And so Luke says, Hey, I'm going to step away from this. I'm going to go up the hill. I'm going to scout up there where I have higher ground and see if I can get a better perspective on where, if we're on the right track, if the lodge is in the direction we're headed. So he goes up to these woods that are a bit sparser, a bit newer. And while you don't really see, see anything in that scene, you do get like the briefest glimpse of something big out in the distance between the yes. trees. It, well, it's it's an incredibly bizarre image because it is what appears to be a five-fingered hand mm-hmm. about 15 feet up the tree. Um, and all of the hints of the whatever it is that's following them in the woods mm-hmm. um, take this similar pattern in the sense that I, I always feel like there's one or two aspects to what you're seeing that don't, that they're, they're just internally contradictory. Yeah. So, Every time you see it, it's hard to get a sense of the shape, the size, the speed, because there are aspects of its form that you can recognize, but the context and the spacing is all wrong. Yeah. Um, and they, they do that with four or five very clever um, you know, shots where you never really get a true sense of the shape, the size, or the form of the thing, but your brain is telling you that this is very, very wrong. Yeah, it, I'm almost reminded of how people reacted to the xenomorph in the first Alien movie. Because, like, I grew up with that image in pop culture because Kenner decided to make action figures based off that series for kids. Right. Uh, but, like, people who saw that movie in 79 going in blind saying, like, I had no idea what this thing looked like until the end. And that is exactly my reaction to this creature that we finally see in full at the end of the movie. Yes. Yeah. And so seeing a monster in full is. Um a lot of times the kiss of a death for a, a monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's hard to maintain what you've built up in little images and teases um, in a long term. And um, w- without too much details, throughout the entirety of this movie, as they were hinting what the monster was, I kept thinking, this is great. The more they hint, the less I think they're going to be able to pay off on it mm-hmm. because that just wouldn't be possible. Um, and about 25 minutes later, I was so, so delighted to be absolutely fucking wrong. <laughs> you can tell like, um, how itching we are to like describe ugh. the climax of this movie, but... Oh, it, it kills me. <laughs> I'm, I'm like replaying a couple of shots as gifts <laughs> in my brain nonstop right now. Um, and, you know, they, they slowly tease more and more out of it until we get one unbelievably confident shot of the creature in front of a fire. Okay, let's... Get I, well, let's, yeah, let's, 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 we'll skip back. But yeah, it's, they are so confident yeah. about their creature and they are so correct to be confident. I, I, we're, we're passing the spoiler boundary here. There is a creature in the woods. Oh, yeah, but there's a creature in the woods. It's just like, I almost kind of want to save like the description for the end because it's like, it's like the payoff in the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so, so let's, let's, let's see how they get there. Yeah, so I believe it's the following night where uh, Hutch's tent is attacked and he goes missing. And Dom and Phil and Luke go chasing after him for a bit, uh, but they're unable to find him. They just hear his screams. And I believe it was during the following day that they go off the trail a bit and they find Hutch just horribly torn apart, dead, hung in the branches. 
Like, the same way they saw a dead elk previous thing. He's like pinned in the trees 15 feet up. Yeah, I'm almost reminded of how the predator leaves some of its victims in that first movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a horrifying shot that thankfully doesn't linger too much. And they realize, okay, we have to, we have to keep on going. Yeah, and, but first they have to get the compass out of Phil's pocket oh. and then, or out of out of Hutch's pocket and bury him. Yeah, and Dom, like to Dom's credit, he is insistent that they give him like a burial sometimes. So they yeah. he kind of makes a cairn of branches over him and they move on. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I was I was live tweeting uh, or live texting somebody as I was watching this because she had seen it, known that I would love it, and <laughs> um and wanted to know what I thought. And about ten seconds before this sequence, I wrote to her, man, I really like Hutch. He's a great guy. And that's who I want to be in a, in a crisis situation is I want to be like Hutch. He's like very aware of people's emotions. He's very calm. He gets people directed. And then 10 seconds later, I typed to her, well, that was ill-timed because oh. Hutch, Hutch being removed from the situation sort of accelerates how screwed they are because he's such a source of competence. I could almost imagine Hutch talking them their way out of the situation they land themselves in later. It's like, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Of all of like the really obscure horror memes, good guy Hutch is one I'm picturing. Yeah. Now. Uh, Hashtag Hutch was right. <laughs> uh, and so like they carry on. I think it's dusk on one day of their hike where they crest this hill and Luke goes on ahead a bit and he's able to see like way on the distance, the lodge that they have a reservation at. And they say, if we don't make it to the lodge by the certain date, like they're going to have to come looking for us. And he sees the lodge and it's this beautiful sight, but he also sees these torch lights in the woods. Yeah. And it's like the first hand like, oh, we're not, we're not alone here. Oh. Yeah, which, which very reminds me of the closing shot of another movie that I think we should probably discuss at some point. Um, and I just stopped myself from saying the title of that movie because it okay. would have spoiled the end of that movie. Oh, I um, know you, which one it is. Yes. <laughs> uh, b- but because of that movie, that that image of him seeing the extra fires um, felt extra resonant and frightening for me. Yeah. And I think that's the point where Phil steps out of his tent to go, hey, what's going on? And then the thing that got Hutch gets Phil as well. Yeah. And it's the, it's the, the clearest shot you've seen of the creature so far. And I backed it up and watched it a few times but it just looks like a tree reaches down and pulls him away. It's so subtle and it's so hard to tell what's going on in those shots in a way that I find um, very effective for when they do the reveal later. Fucking horror Jim Garrison in the courtroom back and to the left. Yeah. Back and to the left. And I believe it's at this point where Luke and Dom are taken. Am I correct? Um, yes, at Luke or Luke and Dom, I think they, they reach a cabin. They find a cabin with yes. somebody in it. Um, and they sort of tumble in the door. And the first thing they see is a boot connecting with Phil's head. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are, uh, and then at that point, you know, I've, I've been sort of deliberating, is it a creature in the woods? Is it, you know, other people? And the delightful answer is it's everything. <laughs> um, so they wake up, um, in the, basement of a small series of houses in a clearing that's mm-hmm. clearly this sort of hidden community in the middle of this forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so both Luke and Dom, they're tied up, chained up in this basement. Uh, there's like a a couple of like recurring people that come by. There's a decrepit old woman, and there's like a younger woman as well who seems to be the only one who can speak English there. And uh, the English-speaking woman 
is the one who informs Luke that like a sacrifice needs to be made so they can live on. They can have a kind of eternal life. And that's where it's pointed out that everybody there has the same marking of scars on their chest that Luke has been given. Yeah. And uh, they look on that for Dom and it's not there. And it's clear at that moment that Dom is the one who's chosen for the sacrifice. Yeah. So they bring him out and they tie him to the stake. And like at first, like, what are they going to do for him? Like, are they going to burn him? Are they going to crucify him? But he's hoisted up on the stake and then you see the trees rustle and someone steps out, but it's a woman. And as we learned, like from what from Don's dialogue, it's his own wife, what she's doing out here. Like she takes his face by the hands. And in that moment, the perspective shifts and we can see that it is not a loving human woman holding Don's face. It is something massive, but with like eerily human hands in it. Yes. That seem to be coming out like mandibles out of a giant head at that point. Yeah. We're getting these Flashes of something like a pair of eyes hidden deep within a hood and Dom is taken forcibly off the stake and he's taken out to the tree line where he's impaled on one of the branches of the larger trees and killed. Yeah, where, we, where we've seen many other uh, corpses in various amounts of decay and age mm-hmm. pinned in the trees as well. Um, to close up the sort of the, the, the masculine communication, um, there's a, a really sweet scene uh, where Dom knows he's going to be taken out um, and I mean, they have basically a reconciliation about mm-hmm. their prior fight without ever discussing the details or the specifics. They have this very mechanical conversation about, uh, they're going to kill me. You need to break out. You can, you know, you can do this. And it's clear that there's this moment of forgiveness and friendship between the two of them yeah. without the subtext ever coming to the surface. And I think that's, was a really great way for them to conclude, um, that part of the film where there is more than one character. And by not, by keeping it to subtext, like, oh yeah, that apology and that reconciliation is still very stereotypically male. It just felt so authentic, but it also let me leave. It also let me have a great deal of sympathy for Dom right before he died. I mean, I would feel bad for anybody who went through what he does in those final moments because it did not look pleasant. Uh, Yeah, that's when uh, Luke makes his move. He's able to break his thumb or dislocate it at least yeah and get out of his restraints he grabs a rifle he goes upstairs because well and, and all oh. he knows at this point is that they are it, he knows that the creature in the woods that they claim it to be um the half spawn of loki yes that it's a a a, a jotun a giant mm-hmm. and that if they commit sacrifice for it they will be given long life um and that's the only details that we get so as soon as he escapes, he goes up to this room at the roof of the house where he's hear, heard strange noises before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I think might be one of the most strange sequences in the entire movie. It, it has the feeling to me of a, of a sequence that is preserved from a book to movie translation where not all the connective tissue has come with it. But that sequence is that he goes into this room and finds it like a makeshift church where every bench and the pulpit is filled with what look to be mummified corpses. Yeah. Uh, Until they start moving very slowly. Um, And, you know, it's utterly unspoken, but the implication to me at least is that 
the long life that the Jotun is granting these people is maybe not the greatest long life that you would want. Yeah. There appear to be some strings attached. It's not so much, I have no mouth and I must scream. It's, I kind of still have a mouth, and I, but mostly I can moan. Um, I'm just rotting away here, yeah. And, and I think that I, I laughed out loud in that because the moment one of them moves, uh, Luke has this expression on his face that is not fear, but it looks like just extreme tiredness. He's like, no, I'm, just, I'm not going to deal with this. And he immediately just puts the torch right onto the corpse and then sets all of them on fire. And it's such <laughs> a like a very decisive moment for him. Oh, and he does uh, it so casually too. He's not like whipping the torch around. He just walks from one to the next and like setting them on fire casually. Yes. Um, yeah. He goes downstairs and he's confronted by the old witch woman who seems to run the place and just decks her. Um, yeah. Yeah, at this point, the monster, the creature is outside and it is clearly unhappy about what's going on. So- as as he is fighting his way out of this house and you know punching old ladies, the creature is outside, uh, killing more of its worshippers at the same time. Yes, and yeah, he's able to break out, and Luke makes it to the tree line, and that's where we get the shot. Cam, you go ahead. Yeah, so um, we have this really wide shot, um, and the creature we see in silhouette of the house that's on fire, and so it has what appears to be the body of an elk. But its head is, and the only way I can think of to describe it is it looks like two human beings fused together. And what it looks like is the effigy in the roof Mm -hmm. of the uh, hunting lodge. So you understand that effigy is not a whole creature, but it was just the head of this creature. Um, So it has two human-like arms that act as manipulating mandibles. It has a human face. Uh, it maybe just be eyes sunken deep in there, like a Jawa head almost. Yeah, but then the top of its head is a sort of an enormous human torso with a severed neck and two arms gripping these uh, elk antlers. Um, now I've read a little bit recently that apparently the the physiology of the creature shifts between shots because oh. they wanted that sense that it wasn't something you could pin down, which is, I think, something we both picked up on in the flashes, is that there were things that were gut-level wrong about it. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, for the rest of the movie, you know, this creature is, it looks like a big noble elk with this horrifying head that has human arms and eyes and deer horns sticking out of it. (laughs) So I touched on this in the previous episode of my interview with Cameron Tremblay about Black Mountainside. This antler imagery and how it ties into like a lot of imagery and horror of kind of repurposed wood and using skulls and bones as decorations, like this kind of corrupted nature or nature with an agenda. And you and I, we've been, this is our shit. This is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Antlers, antlers as a, as an aspect of a horror um, silhouette is extremely our aesthetic. Yeah, I'm just like not sure what to term it. Like neo pagan sounds wrong and kind of offensive. I, I see what it, what it is for me. I think is that um, we, we're all mammals. I think listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, and I think that in you know innately, like we look at dogs and cats and other mammals, and we sort of have this sense of kinship. Um, when you look at bugs mm-hmm. and uh, lizards, I think people have a lot more innate fears of those because they are stretching farther and farther away from the sort of mammalian archetype. Mm-hmm. that we know of as comfortable. And I think what it is about horns for me 
is that they are only on mammals, but I have no frame of reference for why they should exist. Yes. It's like something that's coming out of the familiar that is unfamiliar and wrong. Yeah, like... I'm just thinking of like the context it's usually used in. So just going to rattle off some titles here. So True Detective, it's used on the corpse and that, uh, as well as like the statue of the Yellow King. What else? Uh, Hannibal. Hannibal, yes, at the Wendigo and uh, Shrike imagery. Not I guess Shrike imagery. Uh, You have the great video game Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. You have The Witcher 3. Uh, Yep. Uh, the the DLC that I wrote for uh, yes. Tomb Raider is uh, rife with antler images all over the place for this very reason. Because uh, I went around to every concept artist and said, hey, what about antlers? <laughs> um, and we got some. Excellent. Uh, almost like I'm tempted to say like druidic horror. There's something sort of, there's something natural about it. It's, it is a, a monster that doesn't feel uh, like the alien unnatural it feels very much embedded in the natural world but it has like an agenda of its own it's not necessarily <laughs> corrupt but it's very apathetic towards human concerns it yeah. is like I, it has been there longer than us i i will say that I, the my my stun and shock and awe at seeing the creature mm. um didn't diminish after i watched it and i think after thinking about this for some time i'm pretty pretty comfortable <laughs> saying that this is um, it, easily one of my top five movie monsters of all time. Um, yeah. It's just not only the fiction of its background being, you know, uh, the bastard offspring of Loki that lives in the woods, <laughs> um, but just the shape and the way it moved and the way it acted um, is just is stunning. It's something I keep thinking about. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we're, we're, we're very much at the climax here. Yeah. Um, I would say like, he's, this thing looks like something Geralt would have fought in The Witcher. Like I'm... Looking at this thing, I'm already imagining what oil I want to apply to my sword, what sigils I'm going to be using. <laughs> uh, I, was, yeah. I was very much more in Luke's frame of mind, which was, oh, Jesus Christ, run. Oh, and he does run and leads the Yotun on a merry chase. And that's where like stuff starts to get really head screwy because we're seeing the imagery again of the convenience store from the first scene. Like, and he's weaving in and out of these convenience store aisles in the middle of the woods because he's yeah. still kind of, you know, it's not just psychological, like he's trapped in the kind of supernatural nightmare of his guilt. And yeah. Well, we've learned prior that the, the Jotun can create dreams um, mm-hmm. in people because it made them all dream. Um, so we know that it's manipulating his weak point, which is his guilt over um, – over Rob's death. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, it's sort of this wonderful blend between the subjective space and the objective space. Mm-hmm. And it gets to a point where the Yotun has him cornered and it looks like he's about to reach down and grab him and treat him to the same f- fate as Dom. Uh, but it catches Luke in this pose where he's like knelt down in front of it and like kind of simulating the same praying that Phil and the worshippers were doing earlier. And that... It's cl- it's clearly what the Jotun wants. It, yes, it, it 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 goes from being aggressive in chasing him to almost gentle the first time it holds him in position, mm-hmm. um, and then once he's in position, the Jotun rears back up in probably my favorite shot of the entire movie and takes this pose that I've heard people say that they think that the Jotun is imitating one of the runes on the trees, but to me, all that all that it, I could tell was that the, it was like a sacred pose. There was something yes. almost sort of um, Shiva-like about the way 
you know, its mandible arms come together in prayer. And if, if you look closely, I may have watched this scene about 50 times so far. <laughs> um, if you look closely, other arms are unfolding from inside yes. of it to pray. And you get this sense that there is an enormous rent along its belly that anything could come out of at any moment. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at a screen That's cap of it now. Our clearest shot of the creature at that moment. And it almost invalidates a lot of what we've seen before because it basically says, look, there's way more to this than you've even seen before. But I think that that image of it praying, this enormous monster praying in the moonlight, um, was so awe-inspiring that I don't think that I closed my mouth for the rest of the movie after that. It was exactly what I did not expect. Yeah. You know what? Shout out to that effects team because they did the impossible, which is to say they had a massive CGI creature in a horror movie, which is normally like kills any effect that a horror movie creature could have and they pull it off. Yeah. 100%. um, Yeah. I, I was wrong and I'm so happy to be wrong. I thought there was no way they could pay off on it, but it is, uh, (laughs) it is stunning. Um, And then in, in that moment, Luke refuses to bow down and he continues to stand up and rougher and rougher. It keeps pushing him down into the mud. Yeah. Demanding that he pray. And I got to admit, um, I would have prayed in, in a heartbeat. Oh, same. Um, but I also like realizing now like, oh, no wonder it's forcing him to pray. Literally all of its previous worshipers are now dead. It, and like, it needs him. Yeah. Yeah. And, but he's not having it. So he takes a hatchet he picked up earlier and just buries it in the thing's head and makes a mad dash for the tree line. And, and they do a wonderful sense of tying him, striking it with the hatchet with his failure to strike the junkies with the vodka bottle. Yes, exactly. Earlier on. So it's like he has that moment of redemption himself. Mm -hmm. And he's able to make it out of the tree line. And that's where we clue into the fact that the forest, like that is the only domain the Yotun has. He can't proceed past the trees into the plains beyond. As a oddly, darkly funny little segment where it roars at Luke and Luke just pissed and exhausted and terrified just roars back at it and they have an exchange like this for a few seconds but it's just this man letting just loose utterly nonverbal. yeah he's this primal scream where he's letting loose all of his fear regret anger exhaustion and just like yeah fuck you dear god <laughs> it's it's so cathartic yeah and, and it's like it's it's also it's like I said, I think I will make apologies for this movie till the end of time, but it is such a like a genuine and sweet moment mm-hmm. almost at the end. It's a, it's you know, like I said, the the third act of this, every every new moment that changed caught me by surprise because I didn't expect a uh, you know an attic church full of zombie worshippers, um, <laughs> and it just kept confusing me from there. And it was a wonderful sense of being uh, unmoored from the usual horror structure. Yeah, and. That's basically it. Like he's able to drop the hatchet and just limp to the lodge. And he's- yeah, and the, the movie knows it's done there. It, you know, you have about one shot of him walking and then one shot of him seeing a car on a road in the far distance. Yeah. Um, and that's it. You know, we, we have implied that, that he has made it to safety and that, that, and you know, everything has, has accomplished. It doesn't overstay its welcome by at all. Yeah. Like the exact amount of Dana Martin needed, and that is The Ritual. Uh, once again, it was directed by David Breckner, based off a novel by Adam Neville. 
this was a really good movie. Like literally my only quibbles with it were again, my issues with Phil, but you have a good apology for that. And I think the sound was mixed a little bit too loud at times, but otherwise like this was a solid woodsland horror movie. And yeah. And it's, it, 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 it was one of those things that uh, I liked it more three days after I saw it than immediately after I saw it. And I liked it right after I saw it, but it is just, it has continued to percolate in my thoughts in a really wonderful way. Yeah, so it's on Netflix. Like, check that thing out. Uh, can we can we talk a little bit more about the creature go, design? Go ahead, go um, ahead. Because um, the, the, obviously, I think my only negative with the movie that I could think of is that the creature was so awe-inspiring that I think I need to go back and watch the third act again, knowing what it looks like, to sort of properly appreciate the underlying emotion of the story. But I was <laughs> so captivated by the the Jotun, the god. Um, and I started to realize that I'd seen something that looked very similar to it. Um, and it reminded me a lot of a picture that I used to see on 4chan's paranormal board about 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and so I started to look up who did the, the design for the creature. And lo and behold, it is a concept artist, artist named uh, Keith Thompson, who is exactly the artist that I was familiar with seeing their work on the internet 15 years ago. Um, and I think, you know, we can probably put a, a the, the link to his art in the, the show notes, but I'll do that. Um, he's, the, what happened is that the, the creators of the movie were familiar with his art as well and reached out to him specifically to design it based on his prior work. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that, that, that might be one of the reasons I was already sort of, um, preloaded to enjoy the design of that creature as I've been a fan of that artist's uh, concept art for a long time. Yeah. And other people working on this movie had some good resume behind them, like the director, David Bruckner. Uh, he did the 2007 horror film, The Signal, starring mm-hmm. AJ, AJ Bowen. He co-directed that. And he also co-directed the segment Amateur Hour in the first VHS anthology. It's the one mm-hmm. with the succubus Lilith. And it's yes. Called the, and I'm a big fan of the actor playing Luke Rafe Spall. In yeah. my ideal world, he would be he would play Jack Torrance in my preferred Shining adaptation. <laughs> He's uh, your your dream Jack Torrance. Yeah. Yes, he is. Oh, oh so that the, the director, um, this is his first full length film. There's oh. one other thing that I knew him from, which is that he also directed my favorite segment in the anthology film Southbound. So um, one of the one of the things I, I when I was reading about this is that someone mentioned that. Uh, David Bruckner's re- uh, resume up to this point is that he directs the very best segment in anthology horror films because <laughs> The Signal is also an anthology horror film, which is a, a wonderful one if you haven't seen it. But um, <clears throat> yeah, he, this was his first full length movie. And I think the confidence in the economic style that he developed working in anthology films um, is very much on display here. God, so many good directorial debuts over the last few years in horror. Yeah, it's almost like you need a podcast to talk about all of them. Uh, uh, yeah. It's such a good decade for horror movies. Oh, it's it, it's the best time to be watching horror. I was just really nice talking about The Ritual. It's a great movie to gush over. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Watch it. Everybody watch it, please. Yep. Uh, so yeah, once again, everybody, thank you for joining us on Outside of a Dream. And as always, if it gets too scary, you always have the power to press pause. I hope you have a nice night.